when you look at the marvelous message of the gospel and you begin to attempt to wrap your mind around it, ultimately, you just simply have to cry out, Jesus, thank you. I mean, just the, the, the satisfaction of the Father's wrath, the willingness to suffer on our behalf, to trade places, to be the substitute, um, to go through that for ungrateful creatures who did not deserve or even want that, uh, the only thing we could do is say, Jesus, thank you. We're going to be in John, uh, 1 John chapter 5 today, verses 13 through 17. I originally was going to attempt to go 13 through the end of the chapter, and it's just too much. So we're going to go 13 through 17, and then Lord willing, um, finish out the chapter uh, next time. Um, let's go ahead and begin here uh, with uh, a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your continued faithfulness and kindness to us. I pray that you might help us as we look at this passage of Scripture in front of us, that you might conform our minds and our behavior to it. I pray that you would uh, just encourage us and help us to see what you have for us in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, uh, Joe Rogan said the following on his podcast. He said, uh, telling a story about he was talking with a friend, he says, we were talking about how complex the human mind is and how complex life and society is, and yet there's no real management book. There's no document that shows you this is the optimal way to exist. And these are the pitfalls of existing other ways. You have these human reward systems built in, and they can be hijacked by these various things, and this is the way the human body and the human mind exist optimally. For whatever reason, there's no real structure that people can follow that's universally agreed upon. Say if you're a mechanic, right, and you're working on an engine. Like there's very clear documents that show that these are the pistons and this is the spark plug and this is the carburetor. If it's not clean, it'll do this. This is the problem with the gas line. You have to fix it this way and that way and you do it all right and it starts up and it works. And you can fix things that way and you can build things that way. We don't really have that for the most complex thing that we're aware of, which is human existence. And I just want to say, I have news for you, Joe Rogan. <laughs> I have news for you. What Joe misses, obviously, is that such a document actually does exist. But the reason that we don't follow this document like we follow the document that tells us how to change our oil is because the problem is not a lack of education, but a lack of desire. In fact, we actually, as human beings, will do something rather remarkable. We will know and be convinced that this is the best path and this is the most optimal thing that I should do to even increase and enhance my own happiness, and we will willingly choose to walk away from that and go somewhere else. The problem is not education. We know what will cause ultimate human flourishing and happiness. The problem is our sinful desires. If people maintained their vehicles the same way that they maintain their marriages or their homes or their relationships or their views on sin, some people in this world would have found themselves on the side of the road hundreds of thousands of miles ago because we simply don't do what we know we ought to do. The letter of 1 John gives us a small glimpse 
into how this human, quote-unquote, machine runs optimally or properly. And you may recall that one of the things that we said in 1 John was that he wrote this with three main purposes in mind. And those three main purposes are explained in uh, three verses. Is the order of this slide out of, are we out of order here? Or did we get ahead of ourselves? So you have 1 John 1, 4, where he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Um, we see in 1 John 2, 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So there's these three verses where he specifically says, this is why I'm writing this letter to you. And then finally, in our text today, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so what we have here is that 1 John 1, 4 teaches that this letter was written so that you would have joy. 1 John 2, 1 teaches that it was written so that you would not sin. And 1 John 5.13 teaches that it was written so that you would have assurance of faith. And we've observed previously that the way to the joy is actually through the other two. You cannot have full joy when you are living in unrepentant sin, and you cannot have full joy if you lack assurance of your salvation. Okay? And so these three purposes of John actually fit together very well. They're not excluding one another, but they're actually working uh, together. Another way of looking at this is from the perspective that Rogan is trying to get at. How can I, as a human being, live an optimal life? What, what are the decisions that I ought to make? What is the lifestyle I ought to lead? What are the thoughts that I ought to have that are going to lead to the, the most possible uh, human flourishing, the best possible life that I could live? I, what if I want to avoid things like depression and anxiety and despair and obsessions and compulsions and all those kinds of things? Well, the answer comes from Scripture. And while we're not going to look at specific answers to these specific questions, we are acknowledging that, broadly speaking, these answers can be found in Scripture. I'm writing these things to you so that your joy might be full writing these things to you so that you know that this assurance of faith and this pursuing after obedience and Christ-likeness is going to lead to that ultimate joy that you can have as a person. And so today's passage really is about getting the foundation right. And the question that we want to ask ourselves today is simply this, how can I be sure of my standing before God? How can I be sure of that? Let's read the passage, 1 John 5, 13 through 17. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We're going to use the following outline today. Um, we're going to see the foundation in verse 13. 
There is an application given in 14 to 15, and then a final illustration in 16 to 17. Now, as we begin here in verse 13, we immediately note that, the theme, that, we, that we come across the theme verse on salvation, or on assurance of salvation. In verse 13, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may what? So that you may know, so that you may be assured, so that you may be confident, so that you may be sure that you are genuinely a child of God. Now, there are a few things to note here. John says he's written this letter with the purpose of giving assurance of salvation, which means that the letter of 1 John should be used to that end. Okay? If you are ever in a situation where you are asking yourself, am I truly a child of God? Am I truly saved? Am I truly a believer in Christ? Then where do you go? 1 John. Okay? This is where you go. If you want to make a Thanksgiving meal... You might consult your family cookbook, okay? If you want to repair your vehicle, you might consult your Haynes repair manual, or nowadays YouTube, okay? If you want to plant grapevines, then you, may, you might consult a book on that topic. You know the best way to prune them and uh, direct them to grow. If you need to learn uh, land navigation, you might consult a field manual. If you need to learn how to code in Python, you might seek out some interactive tutorial that you can find, and so on and so forth. The list goes on and on and on. And if you need to be assured of your right standing before the Lord, then you go to the letter of 1 John. That's where you go. And it is crucial to understand this point that our assurance of our right standing before God is not derived from our emotions or our feelings or our arbitrary circumstances. I would say that probably the default position of many, many Christians, broadly speaking today in America, simply will say, well, I feel like I'm saved, or the Lord has done this, and so therefore I must be a child of God, without ever looking to Scripture at all. There is a certain class of person who looks at the whole situation and they think to themselves, I feel like God favors me, or, or, or I know that God did this in my life and therefore I must be his child, or I just know that I'm a Christian. It will come with great surprise to many of these people to hear these words on the final day, depart from me, I never knew you. Those words are going to come with great shock to many a people. The way is narrow that leads to salvation. The gate is wide that leads to destruction. The Bible is God's means for determining these things. So why would we discard it and rely on our own fallible intuition? Right? We tend to just kind of uh, just you know, shoot from the hip as it were, right? I think this, I think that, I feel this, I feel that. Go back to Scripture again and again and again. John has listed for us in this passage the path to assurance. And as I've alluded to before, because he has this threefold purpose in this letter, the path to assurance of your faith is just one stop on the destination to your path for joy. Okay? I want true joy, then I have to be sure of my standing with the Lord. Consider the child who is unsure of his parents' love. 
that is going to translate directly in the home to a lack of joy. It just is. If you can't get that foundational truth right, do my parents even love me, okay, then you can't go beyond that very far. And so one might walk away, and I understand we're getting to the end of 1 John here. One might walk away from some of the passages that we've looked at feeling kind of beaten down a little bit. And there are, admittedly, some very harsh statements in 1 John that I would suggest to us that we are by no means allowed to sterilize or neutralize or soften. It's not my goal or our goal to soften anything that we come across in Scripture. On the other hand, the harsh sayings in Scripture are here to lead us to repentance. Okay? And you know Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And we live in a world where we want to be coddled, we want to be affirmed, and we just want that little pat on the head to say, just keep doing what you're doing, you do you, and everything will be great, okay? And we have really lost the ability to appreciate and actually even desire these wounds of a friend. And I would suggest to us that 1 John is one of these letters that provides to us many wounds from a friend, many harsh statements that really force us to ask ourselves, am I one of God's children? The path to joy in 1 John, then, is not through dismissing the difficult parts, but through embracing them, going straight through them. And therefore, we have this very concise summary verse, 1 John 5.13, again, where we are. I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may... No. John is writing, of course, to believers. He says, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Calvin says on this, he says that he wrote to those who had already believed so they may believe more firmly and with greater certainty and thus enjoy fuller confidence as to eternal life. Again, this is the goal. Calvin notes here, and I think the verse is teaching us that God's heart for his children, we, we, we come across some of these harsh I understand this. Statements in the Bible, and 1 John in particular. And sometimes that can cause us to recoil a little bit. But I think what the Lord is doing here is, is, is revealing that his heart is for his children to move further up and further in, as it were. Um, God does not want his children to lead wandering lives. Aimless lives with no anchor Wondering, am I a child of God or a child of the devil? Where, where am I? This is not what the Lord's heart is. The Lord's heart is that we would, be, uh, we would know him intimately. The Lord's heart is that we would be sure of our standing and that this would produce confidence and faith and joy in us. And though the world would say otherwise, it is a delight to be a child of God. It is a delight to be part of the family of God. It is a refuge for a weary soul. And it is the one thing that when we get this thing right, everything else falls into place where it should be. You miss it here, and you miss it everywhere. The Lord included this portion of Scripture so that you would know, be confident of your standing. 
And therefore, we ought to diligently apply the means that God has ordained to come to this conclusion. Seen from this perspective, then, the letter of 1 John is a comfort to troubled souls. Can you, you see? He's writing to people who have these false teachers coming in and undermine, undermining the certainty of their salvation. And John is saying, this is what a child of God looks like. He grows in his obedience. He grows in his repentance. He, he, he grows in his love for the brethren. And I'm writing these things to you, brothers, so that you would know that you're a child of God. He's providing comfort to the wandering, weary soul. Now, some people would seek to rob the assurance that John is trying to produce for us. Okay, And there are certain pitfalls to avoid, and there are certain theologies, false theologies, that actually say that it's wrong to have assurance. Okay? One such uh, would be uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, they would say, they would condemn confidence and assurance and say that you can never have assurance until the end. Okay? John says you can have assurance at the beginning of your Christian life. And you can walk your whole Christian life confident of a child, they would say that you can't have it till the end. Therefore, they rob the Christian of the assurance and confidence. Arminian theology does the same thing. Uh, we can lose our salvation, and so therefore, we never can come to assurance. If you can lose your salvation, then you cannot have assurance. You can't. You can only have assurance of salvation that John is teaching us if your salvation is secure. Likewise, I've had conversations with some Amish who would actually say that assurance of salvation, if you think that you can have assurance of salvation, then that is presumptuous. You've probably heard some people use that term before, that... You are presumptuous to assume that you can have assurance of salvation. I'm going to read to you what one commentator says about those who would say that this is presumptuous. He says this, His emphasis is important, talking about John, because it is common today to dismiss any claim of assurance of salvation as presumptuous. You're just presuming on God. You don't know. You can't. And to affirm that no certainty is possible on this side of death. But certainty and humility do not exclude one another. In other words, you can be sure of your faith and be humble at the same time, okay? If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe, and live, but also that we should know, presumptuousness lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. See what he's saying here? In other words, some people say, it's presumptuous of you to say that you can be sure of your salvation. On the contrary, it's presumptuous to doubt God's word, and God's word says you can be sure of your salvation. And so the presumptuous one is actually the one who walks around and says you can never be sure because they disbelieve God at his word. Whereas we understand, or should understand, that when God says... I am writing these things to you so that you may know that we simply believe that. If God says you can have assurance, 
then you can have assurance. End of story. Assurance of faith is the foundation. And if we don't have that foundation, we cannot build on it. You've probably experienced this yourself at some point in your life or known someone who has experienced constant nagging doubt of your standing before the Lord. And they can't be very productive until they nail this down. A community, for example, cannot build cars or start restaurants or pave roads if they're in a war zone. Right? you got to get the foundational things correct first. In the same way, you cannot pray well or evangelize or grow in your faith if you're unsure of your standing. All of your energy is spent in that doubting and that going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But it is the one who comes to this confident assurance who can now go on to be productive and follow the Lord in what he's called us to do. When you come to assurance of faith, there is joy and you can build on that. And one of the ways that you can build on your assurance of faith is through prayer. And that's the next section. In verses 14 through 15, he says this. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, we, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Okay? Let's... Follow the train of thought here. When you are sure of your salvation, you have confidence. And when you have confidence of your standing before God, you then have confidence in prayer. That's all that he's saying here. We can be confident that when we pray to God, he hears us and will answer our prayers. Okay? And it's this building on this foundation Okay, this verse says that if you ask anything according to God's will, he will hear you. Now understand that it's not simply saying that he hears you versus he's saying, wait, what did you say? I didn't catch that exactly. God hears everything, okay? He hears all, okay? But as one person has said, when, when it says that God hears you, it means that he hears favorably, Hears you with a heart to answer that request. He hears with an ear ready to grant your request. And we know this is true because of verse 15 that says, we know that we have the requests. And we already have what God has asked or what we've asked God for. And we see similar promises throughout scripture. Just going to John's gospel. If you abide in me, this is Jesus speaking, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you want and I will do it for you. Okay. John 14, 13 to 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is, uh, this is an interesting passage, interesting couple of passages. When you come to these promises in Scripture, ask me whatever you want, and I will do whatever you ask of me. There are two groups of people, and we want to be in neither of these two groups here. Two main reactions, okay? So I'm going to kind of give um, a summary of all of these verses, and there's more of them. There's a promise and a qualifier. Okay? 
Uh, the promise is God will give you whatever you ask for. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. And then we see, peppered in these verses, the qualifier. The qualifier isn't in every one of them, but it's in many of them. And the qualifier is you must ask according to his will. Now, there are some people, reaction number one, who believe the promise at the expense of the qualifier. Okay? This group of people would come to this and say, God will literally give me whatever I ask for, like a genie when I rub the lamp, and he just does it. Okay? Um, sometimes this is like word of faith movement kind of things. Um, if God didn't answer your prayer, it's just because you didn't have enough faith. Some people actually um, are arrogant enough to assume that you could do in your human flesh whatever Jesus Christ did, all the miracles and everything, if you just had enough faith. Okay. Um, and so that's one reaction to these verses. The second reaction is to believe the qualifier at the expense of the promise. Okay? God is going to have his will anyway, and we have to pray according to his will, and so my prayers are unnecessary and redundant, and I may as well not even pray, because it's got to be according to his will anyway. Now, I would suggest that we don't want to latch on to either reaction. God promises to hear and to answer our prayers that are in accord with his will. And even Jesus himself prayed in the garden, Mark 14, 36, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Okay, this is what our prayers are to look like. They're to be qualified in this kind of a way. Now, of course, we need to be careful to avoid the word of faith movement that would influence us to believe that our prayers are more powerful than they are. Um, some people would suggest that we can literally get anything that we want because of these passages. Now, my guess is that most people in this room, at least today, probably don't fall into that first reaction. I would suggest that more of us would fall into the second one. Okay? Well, God's going to do what God's going to do anyways, and so we suffer from lack of prayer. Okay? Is that a fair assessment for most of us, probably? Okay. We suffer, I think, from lack of prayer and lack of trust in God in answering those prayers. And what we're doing in that situation is we are allowing the qualifier to swallow up the promise so that we essentially don't even believe the promise anymore. Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. This raises a question. If there is a, if there is a qualification on these prayers, why so many statements all over the Bible saying God will give you whatever you want. Right? If, there's, if these all come with qualifiers, you have to ask it according to God's will. Then why so many passages, some of which don't include the qualifier? Why is that? I would suggest to us that the reason for this is because your loving Heavenly Father stands eager to hear and answer your prayers, and that's his default position. Right? I mean, think of, think, of, think of Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
You understand this as human parents, right? Think of your children asking you for something. Now, even though there are plenty of times that as a parent, you say no and I say no, I think, and you're going to have to ask my children about this, okay? I think that the default position is if my children ask me for something, I want to say yes to that by default. If they come to me uh, and, and, and ask me for, you know, oatmeal for breakfast, I don't know. And, uh, you know, I give them a, I don't, I don't give them a brick and say, ha, 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 go get your own breakfast, okay? I mean, that, right? That's not your default position. Your default position is, you want oatmeal? I, here's oatmeal. You want cereal? Here's cereal. You want bacon and eggs? Here's bacon and eggs. I mean, whatever it is, right? I mean, your default position as a parent is to say, I want to answer your requests, and I would suggest the same thing is true here. God wants to answer our prayers. He stands eager. It's his default position. Yes, he says no to our prayers. We have to ask according to his will. But he stands eager and ready. He's not vindictive. He's loving. He's kind. He's patient. And he loves us as his children. And that's what these passages are getting at. And to be sure, he wants our prayers to grow in conformity to his will. Prayer is, according to this passage that we're in right now, Praying according to God's will, not against it. Okay, so yes, that is important. Now, from this perspective, what does 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of praying, Lord, your will be done, do to me? Right? I mean, you think of the Christian, the mature Christian, the gray-headed Christian, who has lived his whole life or her whole life uh, being born again at a very young age, who has submitted their will to God's constantly over decades. What does that do to that person? Well, for one, it humbles us. For another, it teaches us that we're not the main character. Okay? And another, it teaches us to grow in greater and greater delight in conforming to his will, not ours. Barnes says this, we ought not to wish to receive anything that should be contrary to what he judges to be best. No man could hope for good who should esteem his own wishes to be a better guide than the will of God. God's will is a better guide to your life than your own. You, if you follow your own desires for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you will shipwreck your life. I can promise that. Okay. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So, example. Let me give you an example of what praying according to God's will looks like, okay? God has already ordained in his word that in order to eat, we must do what? Work. God, he's made that clear in several passages. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, he says that the person who does not work to provide for his relatives is worse than what? An unbeliever. 
That is a very harsh statement of scripture. The person who does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. The lazy man who does not want to provide financially for his family is worse than an unregenerate person. So what does it look like to pray according to God's will then? It looks like praying that God would provide food through my diligent labor, not by skirting around that or bypassing that. So on this very point, to go back to Barnes again, he says this, it is better that an idle man should not have a harvest, though he should pray for it, than that God should violate the laws by which he has determined to bestow such favors as a reward of industry or work, hard work, and work a special miracle to answer a lazy man's prayers. God's will is for you to work to provide food for your family. Okay? So how do you pray according to God's will? You don't pray, God, I'm going to be lazy and not have a job, but provide anyway. That's praying against God's will. Does that make sense here? We're praying according to God's will. Now, we multiply those examples by all kinds of things we find in Scripture. And we, we, we saw the Ten Commandments earlier, okay? And so these are things that we do, and we pray according to God's will. It is God's will that you work. It is not God's will that you're lazy and idle. So the person who's lazy and idle but prays that God would bless him anyway prays against God's will. It would be better to obey God's will and work and pray that God would bless that. But don't pray that God would violate his will. That's what he's saying here. God will answer our prayers if we pray according to his will. So what does that look like in application? Well, the final two verses, he gives that to us here. He gives to us a very practical illustration of what this praying according to God's will looks like. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that he should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. All right, so I just need to start off this section here by simply acknowledging the fact that there is an incredible amount of debate surrounding what, it me- what a sin that leads to death means, okay? Um, you would not believe the amount of ink that has been spilled to try to figure out the answer to what is going on here, okay? Uh, and so I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here um, and take my best stab at it, Okay? John is saying that if your brother is committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, pray for it. He says, on the other hand, if they are committing a sin that does lead to death, he says, I'm not recommending that you pray for that one. And that is a can of worms. (laughs) The most frustrating part about this is that there's no elaboration at all. Is there a lit? Can we get a list? (laughs) 
Is it these sins are sins that lead to death and these are not? Is it the unpardonable sin that Jesus references? Is that what he's talking about, the sin that leads to death? Is it the sin of not believing on Christ? What's going on here? You can't just throw this out there, John, and then leave it and walk away and expect us to be okay with this, okay? Because it actually has implications. Like, has that person reached this point of no return and therefore I should stop praying for them? I mean, right? That's the kind of questions that you, that you, you look at when you're looking at this passage. This is saying, I recommend you pray for this person, but not for this person. If I can't tell the difference between those people, how do I know who I'm supposed to pray for and who I'm not supposed to pray for? You see now the difficulty that... Okay, so there's many views, and I'm just going to tell you what I think is going on here, and if you want to know more, I can help you out with that. Okay, uh, first base. All sin leads to death. Okay. If you sin one time in your life, you are guilty of e- uh, for eternal damnation in a place called hell forever. And it is not the degree of sin that matters. It is the holiness of the lawgiver that is the reason for that. Okay? You sin against God, that means you put your fist in his face and you say, I know better than you. And you're guilty and condemned and God is right and just and holy to send you to hell for all of eternity, period. You don't like that? You say, that's not fair. You say, that's not right. That's not, guess what? He's God and you're not. End of story. That's how it works. But he's holy and he's kind and he's just and he made a way of salvation, okay? So remember that. So all sin leads to death. Um, he just talked last week about how those who do not believe in Jesus call God a liar. The ultimate sin that leads to death is rejecting Christ. Okay? Now, there's a theological debate here that I don't want to get into, but... Um, some people will say, well, you're not going to hell because you uh, have committed adultery or you have murdered. You're going to hell because you've rejected Christ. Well, that's actually not true. You are going to hell because you've done all those things. But the ultimate and final is I've rejected Christ, okay? I think what John is saying here is I think that he's saying that we should not pray that God would pardon a sinner by bypassing the gospel, If someone has committed this sin to reject Jesus Christ and calling God a liar, do not pray that God would override that and say, can you save them by some other means? Okay. Um, If you say someone has rejected the gospel, you should not pray, God, will you please save this person anyway, even though they rejected you? That's an obvious example, and this fits in with the text, because it's praying against God's will. You're supposed to pray with God's will, not against it. Um, 
So uh, I'm bypassing a ton of, uh, <laughs> and I can get you more information if you're interested in that. But let me just say what, this is what, we tend to focus on the exceptions. Uh, let me just focus on what we should be marveling at in this passage. God says that if you pray for someone who has sinned, he will give them life. That's where our marvel should be located at, that God would actually give someone life through our prayers. All wrongdoing is sin, though, as verse 17 says. Verse 17 says that all wrongdoing... So he's, he's trying to clarify this. Look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So he's saying, I just told you that there's a sin that leads to death, and there one that isn't. But just so you know, all wrongdoing is sin. You can't just say this is okay and that's... No, no, no. All of it is sin. Some people fall into the trap of ranking their sin. Um, and, and I do think that there are degrees of sin, and I do think that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Um, but it would be presumptuous of us to assume, well, I've only committed these sins, and therefore it's not that bad. All wrongdoing is sin is what he's saying. So uh, where do we go from here? Let me try to summarize this for us a little bit. 1 John 5, 13 through 17 teaches us that the, God the Father's heart is that we would be assured of our status as his children. He does not, his heart is for us, not against us. His heart is for our joy and for our comfort and for our resting in his goodness. We read this letter because we want to evaluate where we are and come to a true and right understanding of our salvation. If we read 1 John and determine, man, I'm outside of the faith, then God's heart for us is that we would become a Christian, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, once that foundational matter is settled, and I am confident of my standing before the Lord, I can now boldly approach his throne confident that God will answer my prayers. I mean, ask whatever you want, and God's going to answer that. That's what the passage says. I can be confident of this when I'm confident that I'm his child. And in light of that, one of the foremost prayers, or the illustration here, that God is eager to answer is the prayer for a wayward brother. Pray for this brother who's in sin, and God will give them life. That's like, if you want, like, first base on prayers that are in accord with God's will, it is prayers that God would lead people to repentance. That's what the passage is teaching us, okay? It's very hard to get there when we're wavering about our own salvation, right? But you get that right, you understand that God hears and answers your prayers, and then he says, here's a foremost example, pray for the wayward person. While there is some uncertainty, I understand, about what uh, a sin leading to death is and what a sin not leading to death is, we can, I would suggest, be encouraged, ultimately, that the Lord knows and that we can approach his throne and leave it in his hands. Okay? I would not encourage us to be wavering back and forth. Should I pray for this person? Should I not pray for this person? Is it a sin leading death? Is it not? You know what the Lord knows? And, by, and the text doesn't explicitly forbid this. He just says, I'm not recommending this. 
And when we're uncertain, guess what we do? I don't know what's going on, Lord. Hear me, please help. (laughs) Okay? And leave it in his hands. Trust him. Five points of application today. Number one, look to scripture and specifically 1 John to evaluate your standing before the Lord. Do not trust in your own intuitions, wisdom, emotions, or feelings to tell you whether you are a child of God or not. Your heart is deceitful and will lead you astray. That's number one. What are we looking at? Where's, where's our foundation? What book tells us the optimal way to live? <laughs> okay. Number two, earnestly seek after assurance. Don't let it go. Pursue it diligently until you come to be sure of your standing before the Lord. Recognize and forsake the things that rob us of assurance, such as disobedience to the Lord, not loving fellow believers, a refusal to repent over known sin, and walking in darkness. If you are living in sin and you know it and you're not repenting of it, then you can't have assurance. End of story. Earnestly seek after assurance. And one of the means that God has given to us to be assured of our salvation is that we will repent over sin. Once regenerated, always repenting. Number three, approach the Lord boldly in prayer, confident that he will hear you and answer everything that you ask according to his will. More prayer, not less. Number four, pray fervently for wayward Christians, having the confidence that God can restore them regardless of how far they have fallen. God has restored people to himself that were beyond what any of us thought was redeemable, including you. And it's all because of his grace. Finally, if you conclude that you're not a believer, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank you, God, for this passage. Convict hearts. Draw us to yourself. Help us to have joy in your salvation. One of the most, the most, joy-filled experiences of life is being a child of God. Pray that if there's any here who does not know that joy, that you would grant that to them today. In Christ's name, amen.